When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the New Books Network. I'm Jim Cates. Joseph Cohn is a man of wide-ranging interests and accomplishments. He's been a science and environmental journalist, a maker of documentary films, and for 30 years a faculty member at Oregon State University, where he led the Science Communication Program. Perhaps most notably, he has ranged freely between science and the liberal arts while vividly describing everything from volcanic hot springs on the ocean floor to environmental challenges in the Pacific Northwest. His latest book is called Seeing Opera Anew, A Cultural and Biological Perspective. Joseph Cohn, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your early life and how it led to a fascination with opera, among so um, so many other topics, apparently including baseball, <laughs> and uh, and how o- over time, you know, during your your wide ranging life, this this eventually led to a motivation for this book about opera. Yeah, thanks. Happy to tell you a bit about it. You know, I've been listening to opera since I was a child, so about seventy years. My father was a good amateur singer, and he loved opera. Sometimes singing around the house, and my mother maybe because she was an Italian-American, seemed to feel opera in her blood, but only Italian opera, as it turns out. I got hooked on opera as a teenager in the 1960s. And then in college, I studied literature, music theory, and pre-med sciences, largely because I found them all fascinating. But but music uh, wasn't just a study, as I also sang in several Yale singing groups, sometimes as a soloist. I determined to keep music, literature, and science together and prominent in my life if I could. So while I continued to enjoy and study opera performances and also sang for many years as a chorister, after graduate school at University of Oregon, I professionally became a writer and an editor, and then, as you say, an academic specializing in communicating with the public about science, primarily biological research and earth systems science. So then for three decades as a faculty member, I'd led a science communication program at Oregon State University. So my hybrid career as a research communicator and as a creative uh, and performing artist is relevant here to this book. The investigative habits um, that I've developed over the years and the fascination about music and literature and science that I have long held together have joined into this um, into this book. Opera, as as you know, you know we, we go through the, the the book section at the library with the, with the music books. We see opera usually viewed through a lens of history, uh, musicology, and there's criticism, and then sometimes biography as well. Your new book takes what you call a stereo perspective. It uh, incorporates both science and the humanities. Uh, Can you explain what that means and how you came to adopt that approach? (laughs) It's a great question. It's a puzzle. All the books I've written were driven by my curiosity to understand something I cared about. And that puzzled me, to be honest. I wrote this book because I was intrigued by why and how opera had its effects on me, first of all, but also on other people. I wanted to understand that. And so that curiosity was what really provided the springboard for the book. 
As you know, as you said, many other books have been written about opera, of course, including by academic specialists in music and cultural history, musicology, singing, drama, theater arts, among other specialties. And there are many popular books written by admirers of the art form. What nearly all of these books, though, have in common is that they focus on what I might call the producer side of the artistic equation, the composers, the composition, the cultural period, the opera stories and their music, singers, performers, and productions. All these elements can be interesting to know about, but I personally was always more interested in the consumer side of the artistic equation. So the focus is really, in, in my case, on the audience of opera. And what people ultimately want from opera, as audience research suggests, is to be absorbed in a story that engages their feelings, even moves them deeply, and that may lead them to insights about life and perhaps about themselves. So what is new and different about the content of seeing opera anew is that it really does offer both a cultural and a biological perspective on this very ambitious art form. I call this a stereo view, including the sciences, in distinction to the monaural humanities-only view from which nearly all other opera books are written. And I should say that although this book is unique in its treatment of opera, it really is part of a larger movement in scholarship of putting the sciences and the humanities more closely together in a field that has become known as sorry, biocultural criticism, evolutionary humanities, evolutionary studies of imaginative culture. And, I, and also I should add that as a you know, new way of looking at art, of course, it meets some resistance from those with careers vested in more established ways. The separation of knowledge between those broadly in the humanities and those in the sciences has been noticed and criticized since at least the book, The Two Cultures, written by C.P. Snow in the 1950s. So this is a different book about a familiar topic. So you're, you're taking a familiar topic and forging a new way, and you, you talk about the consumer side of opera. I remember my, my most uh, amazing experience of this, this audience, this effect on the audience occurred a few years ago at the Lyric Opera in Chicago, when my wife and I saw a, a production of La Boheme with Anna Netrebko. Wow. Uh, and uh, we were up in the balcony, and uh, during the, some of the scenes at the end, you know, the, the, the I always make jokes that people, you know, uh, why is it everyone in the 19th century seems to die of consumption? <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, during, the, during, during the, the, the dramatic period at the end, at one point you could hear like, almost a wave of, it was like a combination of sighs and sobbing running across the balcony of this enormous lyric opera house, almost like a, fans doing the wave at a sporting event. It ran across the house as like one great collective gasp. When I, and I was caught up in this, of course. And I, I always think of Carl Valenda, the tightrope walker, and uh, he was quoted as saying, life is the wire. The rest is just waiting. <laughs> Whenever I get out of an opera, I think, okay, what's the next one? The, the interim is just waiting. <laughs> I, I, I think of operas that, that just leave me you know, totally gobsmacked, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin, mm -hmm. which is probably my favorite. Mm -hmm. uh, so many elements, story, instrumental music, vocal music, uh, recitative, in the older operas, I guess, scenery, costume, lighting, some choreography, stage direction, and it's like the ultimate gestalt 
art form to me. It, it, it's greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. in terms of, I think, moving an audience, I, I would say nothing else can compare. Yeah, and I agree, actually, uh, at least for myself. Honestly, nothing really compares to opera for me. I can understand why some people don't care for operatic music dramas, and there are reasons which we go into, but although clearly the dramatic telling of a human story through music is very much alive and well for a great many people these days, think of all the music videos of songs by pop stars over the past 50 years. Think of the Eras Tour uh, with Taylor Swift right now, which has nearly all the characteristics of an opera production. Vocal music, uh, instrumental music, a story, scenery, costumes, choreography, lighting, stage direction, all of that in Taylor Swift's eras, for example. The only thing it doesn't have, of course, is the interpersonal drama that mm-hmm. opera has. But And we could talk about how, you know, in some ways, uh, contemporary performance has evolved from opera. But uh, anyway, yeah, for, for me, the, the richness uh, and the simultaneity of that um, experience uh, of opera is really incomparable. One thing that's interesting about your book is the way you, at times you're, when you're talking about a biological approach, you may go back a couple hundred thousand years and the, the, the development of Homo sapiens as a species. Right. And, uh, and, and at other times w- with this historical approach, may go back a couple hundred years, a couple thousand years. We see opera emerging in Italy in the 1600s. I guess they called it music drama at first. It's like every every other phenomenon. They got to come up with a name for it. <laughs> right. And the first opera that that is still part of the repertoire, of course, is Monteverdi's Orfeo. Um, but the Italians were very familiar with Aristotle, who had written almost 2,000 years before about Greek drama and its effects on the audience, and you know what we might call afterglow or uh, just just total absorption and, and why it works that way. Can, can you speak to that sort of, is it, is it an evolution over a short term, I guess? Yeah. Um, so the, uh, here's a bit of cultural history. I mean, I think that comes into play here. Um, we could talk about the deeper origins of, of music drama as well, but at least in terms of your particular question about um, the uh, the history of opera. You're, you're right. Uh, as you know, I, I do discuss the um, development of opera uh, in the 16th century, in the 1500s, uh, in the book. Um, and, you know, and and the bridge between the Greeks and uh, and Monteverdi, for instance, um, uh, the, the bridge is the reexamination of 15th century uh, Renaissance Italy uh, of Aristotle's discussion of the characteristics of Greek tragedy. Uh, and, and that influenced um, intellectuals in Florence and Mantua and other places. Uh, Aristotle's poetics had been in Italian translation since the 1540s uh, and in Latin translation for more than a century. And educated men at that time did read Latin. So the poetics was a frequent topic of discussion and debate among Italian intellectuals who were concerned about the future of literature and their own culture. So uh, Aristotle, in defining tragic drama as, here's a quote, an imitation of an action that is serious, complete, and of a certain magnitude, he emphasized that spectacle, staging, costumes, movement, and the playing of some musical instruments were important elements in the performance of tragic drama. 
but most critically wrote was language as he wrote it. Of course, this is now the English translation, language embellished with each kind of artistic ornament. I mean, language into which rhythm, harmony, and song enter. So the Italians went, Mirabile, if they were speaking Latin, yeah. I suppose. Um, <laughs> what is known of the performances of classical Greek tragedy led to the musical work that Mantua witnessed with Monteverdi's Orfeo in 1607. There's a, there's a plausible line, which, of course, has been discussed by a number of uh, prominent music historians and scholars. And it's, it's amazing to think, too, of the developments that had taken place in this 2000 or so year interim that would allow opera to emerge in a way it couldn't have, uh, particularly the development of musical instruments. As people say, Nero didn't fiddle while Rome burned because fiddles didn't exist then. Um, sure. And the develop, development of, of bowed string instruments, mm -hmm. um, the beginning of the development of brass instruments, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. the, um, the rise of an aristocratic class, you hear, you know, like a Monteverdi opera and you think someone had court sponsorship yeah. because you don't become that brilliant at, say, playing a brass instrument without your requisite 10,000 hours of practice. So there are other sort of cultural historical factors, yeah. not to mention counterpoint, harmony, music notation, and, you know, all this arising just about the same time as, you know, the, the Baroque period and Bach and and we get this art form all of a sudden flowering and apparently becoming quite popular from the start. Yeah, um, all of that's true. And, and of course, uh, very interesting in its own right, as, as music historians, musicologists would be happy to, to uh, develop. Um, you know, um, uh, the evolutionary uh, cultural scientist, Joseph Henrich, um, makes the interesting observation that uh, in his book uh, called The Secret of Our Success is that we're a cultural species. Um, we know collectively more than any one of us could possibly learn in a single lifetime. And so the emergence of opera, as you exactly said, Jim, the emergence of opera, you know, in the early 17th century uh, depended upon all those factors that you just referenced. Um, Monteverdi couldn't have written Orfeo with a blank sheet of paper with no pr prior um, expertise on the part of all the instrumentalists, the singers, the, uh, all the cultural background that we just uh, were talking about. So, yeah. Um, and of course, to a large extent, um, uh, some of that cultural development in Western music depended upon the church mm -hmm. um, and the needs of the Catholic church uh, for uh, for musical performances to, among other things, capture the attention of parishioners. You, you discuss... Uh... Uh, among many operas uh, in, in the book, uh, Handel's Rodolinda, you talk about evolutionary musicology, which is, uh, you know, it's funny that we were sort of forging these hybrid disciplines here, which of course, I, I, I'm a historian myself, and we see these, you know, sort of uh, new disciplines arising. And some scientists apparently date that this idea of musicology back well before the development of human speech, Afri in Africa, for example, uh, vocal calls to warn each other of dangerous animals, and these involve certain certain musical basics, such as especially pitch, yes, pitch and timber and tone and rhythm and repetition, and these are things that are coming up, and of course later will pop up in speech as well, and they sort of resonate to you know a later 
a later period of time, and then we see an, an opera pro, uh, put on so many years later that draws on these, but of course draws on so much more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Yeah, you know, um, and you're right. It's it's very interesting to uh, understand the that uh, way before there's music, and certainly any kind of music that we recognize, there's the phenomenon of musicality. And as you say, um, musicality can be defined as a natural set of traits based on and constrained by our biological and cognitive abilities. And music in all its variety today, for example, as a social and cultural construct or construction based on musicality. If you didn't have musicality, you wouldn't have music, you know. And uh, I've always liked, uh, and as you said, uh, among those uh, characteristics of musicality are sensitivity to pitch and the ability to distinguish different levels between pitches. Um, another one is um, a timbre, as you were saying, the particular color or character of a sound, a scream versus a, a coup, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, a third is the capacity to produce rhythms and to repeat it in a sustained pulse or meter. Two people linking arms, for instance, and walking towards another place, again, for example. Um, the development of such capacities over time and their combination would eventually lead to music, um, as we usually think of it. But musicality appears to have slowly arisen over hundreds of thousands of years, as you were suggesting, not with an intended goal, of course, to create music, but rather, according to you know, recent theorizing the last 20 years or so, within the sp social circumstances of our uh, ancestral forebears. Uh, the archaeologist Stephen Mithin uh, argued that musical variations in the pitch and rhythm and timbre of human vocal calls, as you were suggesting, Jim, may have arisen more than a million years ago as early hominins, our ancestors, began inhabiting open environments on the savanna in Africa, which is where humans originated. In those vulnerable spaces, they would have been banded together. They're small, they're small animals compared to the predators around them. They would have banded together in groups for protection from other animals, and they would have had to be highly emotional beings, said Mithin, uh, in order, and they would have expressed their emotions um, by calls, by vocal calls, and, and inflecting those calls and so forth. Um, so that's how, in his view, musicality would have arisen um, and in turn, much later on, the musical forms that we know today would have in turn you know, come to be. It's an interesting exercise to look at musicality today. And we know it, it, it varies among people. Sure. Uh, I think of nothing else. You know, I, I watch the students driving around campus with their car windows open. And I'll think if nothing else, they have a musicality that's very highly attuned to a rhythmic pulse. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very good. Yeah. I think that's true. And boom, 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 boom. And it is, we, we believe that there is, there can be a genetic connection between, you know, uh, generations over time, pass through families mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then there's nurture. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit before the program about, you know, our, our respective experiences right. as, as kids, right. you know, being surrounded by music for various reasons and how this, this resonates with you later on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we know, for example, uh, Mozart was brilliant. And of course, the question is, how brilliant would Mozart have been if not for his father, who was his first teacher and who 
spent a lot of time. Well, you know, by the time Mozart was what ten or twelve or so, they were carting him around Europe in a wagon with a pianoforte attached to the top, which I thought I think must have been you know, just especially uncomfortable and uh, very dangerous for that instrument. But he had a special form of nurture, which of course added to his genius, augmented his genius. Yes. But the two, they, they kind of go together. Well, they do, certainly in terms of musical c- composition ability. You know, I, I don't think there's any question about that, although I do love the Einstein, Albert Einstein's observation uh, that I'm looking up here. Um, Einstein was apparently a very good violinist, if I, if I recall, That's what I've heard, yeah, yes. if I recall yeah. correctly. He said, Mozart's yeah. music is so pure and beautiful that I see it as a reflection of the inner beauty of the universe. Yes. Now, Einstein arguably had a clearer appreciation of the inner beauty of the universe yeah. than I do. But I think he's yeah. obviously, you know, he's recognizing that there's almost a kind of a transcendent ability yes. of Mozart in his particular time period. He hit, you know, he consolidated all that had come before him uh, and made it um, in, in some ways seem completely natural. Whereas, of course, uh-huh. it's all learned facility. Mm-hmm. So there's, in a sense, it's part of that cultural species idea where mm-hmm. he's taken all that came before and is now making something uh, perfect, you know, for his own time period out of it. You know, um, uh, in, in terms of appreciation of, of classical music, which I think you were, you were getting at, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, I, I grew up um, and you and I were talking beforehand about how both of us had heard classical music, and I was impressed by your own brother's uh, uh, piano experience. Um, mm-hmm. We grew up listening to classical music, but of course, I also grew up um, listening to musical theater, West Side Story and Camelot in the 1950s and 60s, uh, also singers from Frank Sinatra to the Beatles, you know, in that same formative time period. And I like all of them now, but by appreciation, it kind of depends on what you mean. Um, very broadly, if appreciation Appreciation means responding to the feelings that music can generate. Well, pretty much any form can work, you know, and, and with rhythm, for instance, which in some respects imitates our heartbeat, which is our most important living phenomenon. <laughs> if you don't have one, you're not there anymore. Uh, it's easy to see how uh, young people, for instance, and many people you know, respond to the changes in rhythm. But, you know, but more broadly, if appreciation means responding to recognizing and understanding the form or structure of a music piece, say, recognizing and actively uh, hearing the development of a sonata form or of a fugue, that tends to require more thinking, uh, more thinking than feeling. And it's probably not how most people use music. Most, mm-hmm. most people use music for, you know, for the feelings that it tends to um, occasion. Exactly. You know, it's interesting in, in, in the communication field, we speak of the theory of uses and gratifications. Mm-hmm. What are you going to get out of something? Mm-hmm. And I think, for example, mm-hmm. someone had a, a question on an online forum the other day. They said, are there any other are there any pianists today who have the technique comparable to that of Liszt? Um, my first thought was, well, there are very few. Uh, there are a few that, that, that came to my mind. I was thinking of Marc-Andre Hamelin, who I think is marvelous. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you're right. There's, there are many ways to absorb and appreciate music. And sometimes, you know, as the saying goes, it, sometimes it's just fun. Or we, we, we have a natural inclination to move to music. If there's a beat, we want to sway back and forth. And you, you see that at concerts, for sure. example. Sure. So, so there's, there's also the, the emotional response. You, you talk about opera as, 
as stimulating thoughts of ideas, emotions, themes of life, particularly themes from adult life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that will resonate us, with us and maybe we take home. And I was, I was interested in your, your description of uh, Donizetti's L'Elysir d'Amore. The Elixir of Love. That's one, actually, I have not seen yet. Oh, 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 well, I hope you enjoy it sometime soon because it's one of the great uh, romantic uh, comedies. Um, and uh, I'll talk a little bit about it, if you if you wouldn't mind. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, what's funny, we, we think of that as sort of opera, opera buffa, mm-hmm. but and you can enjoy it on sort of that surface level. It's, you know, what, what critics might call a fun romp or something like that. But as you point, there are some some themes in there that are pretty heavy yeah. things like courtship rituals a selection of a mate yeah yeah for family <laughs> life and then at the end in one of these wonderful implausible opera twists you know the 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 the, the protagonist thinks he is poor Turns out he is wealthy, but he doesn't know it, but everyone else does. And he wonders why all of a sudden all the women are swooning over him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it's a lovely opera. And and actually, it was one of the chapters in the book that I enjoyed writing the most because it is a comedy um, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and on a very important uh, human subject, namely courtship. Um, so going back to your earlier point, Jim, yeah, operas most commonly center on adulthood and the allocation of human energy during that stage, often dramatized through typical challenges and conflicts involved in adult themes, mating and fidelity, parenting and and taking care of progeny, and surviving and succeeding in society. Um, So the first part of the book examines operas that concentrate on each of these stages of what's called human life history. So taking the example then of uh, the Elixir of Love or L'Elysir d'Amore by Donizetti, the, the opera is all about courtship between two people, in this case, a young man, a sincere, poor country fellow who is enamored with a well-to-do, educated, but capricious young woman. Courtship is, of course, important to most everyone because finding a mate is, first of all, important to humans as social animals for many reasons. And mating can lead to children, which is highly important to a great many individuals. And reproduction is also collectively important for the continuation of the species. So along with survival, it's a basic human drive. So, fine. What does Donizetti's music drama illustrate about courtship? Uh, in the first act, the poor country fellow, Nemorino, asks the rich girl, Adina, if he can speak with her, and a musical duet follows in which she first sings a melody to rather gently let him down, and he then sings a response using the same melody to say he can't give up his attraction for her. It's a lovely tune in the bel canto style, which a music historian would be happy to discuss. And the words they sing are cleverly crafted around colorful, natural metaphors of breezes going every which way, in her case, and a river being drawn to the sea, in his case. Now, a good musical dramatic interpretation might point out that although the man does not have money, something may be happening to the woman's estimation of him. Donizetti shows through the man's musical imitation of the woman's tune that he is listening, attuned to the woman, and he's sincere. He just might make a reliable, committed spouse. Without the music, the words alone, the words alone could not make this attunement as clear. But science brings three additional and fresh insights into the discussion. First, relating to virtually all romantic vocal duets in opera, why do the voices imitate, harmonize, or otherwise blend with each other? 
is this just an operatic or musical convention or created by some musicians? Researchers who study conversational vocal patterns have found that in general, even individuals unacquainted with each other actively match the vocal register and the pacing of their speech. You and I are doing it to a certain extent, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But heterosexual singles in a dating situation converge in their vocal register and range over time when they find the other person likable and attractive. So second, again, science here, why doesn't Nemorino just ask, will you marry me? In act one, Nemorino and Adina are really at the start of an established ritual about which they may not be entirely conscious. Courtship is actually a complex ritual of communication and trust building and follows a certain order. Psychologists who study ritual note that it involves performing an act or a series of acts in a set manner for a purpose. Humans develop rituals in order to regulate their emotions, social connections, and the performance of activities. So you follow prescribed sets, uh, you know, sequence of events, and it exerts some control over the uncertain circumstances of life and can generate some confidence. In courting, attraction may be followed by emotional intimacy and later by physical intimacy. So, will you marry me on the first date is unregulated behavior and is unlikely to be successful. Psychology of ritual strongly suggests. Last, Last point. So why is Adina urging Nemorino to forget about her? Well, as courtship commonly leads to childbearing, and child-rearing, prospective partners are often choosy, as explained by evolutionary psychologists. So a cross-cultural study of mate choices in 33 countries distributed throughout the globe, questioning more than 10,000 participants, found men and women typically having clearly differing concerns. In 97% of the cultures, women valued ambition and earning potential in mates more than men did. And in 92% of those cultures, men valued physical attractiveness and reproductive potential more than the women did. Why? The reasons for these distinct differences have to do with evolved biological roles women and men have with respect to childbearing and childbearing, which apparently influences all cultures. Adina is clearly acting consistent with the female role of being choosy around a lower status male whose ability to bring resources into their relationship is not clear. And Nemorino is clearly acting, at least initially, because of her attractiveness, as he discloses the very first time we see him in the opera. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he sings, Quanto e bella. Oh, how beautiful mm-hmm. she is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there you go. Science in those three examples you know, helps to bring a bit more of what's really going on under the surface of that very entertaining opera into focus. That's, that's what's fun about opera is that... and. Certainly, as my wife and I discovered when we first began going to operas, well, probably about 25 years ago, that examined on its surface, the libretto is often very close to ridiculous, <laughs> particularly an opera buffa. Yeah, sure. Uh, if you examine it there, you're like, oh, this is so silly. This mistaken identity or the the scene where the, you know, the, the man is hiding behind a nail keg or something, and he's supposed to be just utterly unrecognized and no one sees him. Um, there, there are opera scenes where opera almost almost makes fun of itself yeah. and pokes fun at itself, yet at the time can resonate in such a heavy way because the themes are there if you want to delve into them. 
Yes, that's right. I mean, and again, um, for me, um, and in the book, obviously, because that's what I'm interested in, and I think it's also borne out by the facts, that it's the operas that stand the test, here's that old phrase, stand the test of time, are the ones that are focused on adult life history and, uh-huh. and the particular challenges you know, that occurred during it. And, um, and obviously, you can't tell the same, the same exact story the same way every time. It would it would stand still for that, obviously, but but the themes are uh, are you know are similar, They're having again to do with uh, courtship and mating and fidelity and marriage. That's what the marriage of Figaro is about, is uh, probably the most famous and durable opera of all, and, and in many ways, to many people, um, the greatest opera. Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. Um, and by the way, I was looking today, Jim, uh, and I saw. I was just curious about um, the difference between the number of views, for instance, that an opera may get in the opera house versus the number of views it may these days get online on YouTube. And just Uh one of the many performances of The Marriage of Figaro uh, online on YouTube had, uh, as of today, 209,000 views, 209,000. And another very popular one, La Traviata by Verdi, had 271,000. That's just a one performance. Mm-hmm. There are other ones. So the point is, yeah, I mean, you, you know, uh, these stories, uh, these human adult stories uh, and the way they illustrate uh, significant moments and crises in them uh, resonate with people over the decades because, oh, gee, they're wearing, they're wearing a different costume. It's the 18th century. And, the, and, and musically, we've gone beyond that. But the story is still relevant you can still learn from it we do uh, uh we see that the, the history of opera is, is fascinating you look at the way opera changed musically in terms of its dramatic structure its pacing mm-hmm. the use of certain elements such as recitative mm-hmm. changed over a couple of centuries and at the same time the audience changed a little bit in terms of its its reception of opera one thing i noticed i i found reading about the history of opera is that, and you talk about operas that survive mm-hmm. and become part of the repertoire, is that there were basically freelance opera composers in Italy, mm-hmm. especially, mm-hmm. who traveled from place to place. You know, we'll go to Milan, then we'll go to Rome, and then we'll, uh, you know, we'll go up to Triste or whatever. And they are writing operas at a frantic pace. <laughs> and sometimes these these manuscript sheets are landing on the music stands just before the overture when the ink is still wet. And many of these operas, of course, are never preserved. They've been lost to time. And of course, you think about the physical reasons for that. Well, it's because publishing them, putting them into type was was a very cumbersome process. But the, the vast majority of these operas have been lost. You look at at, at opera audiences later, apparently it was very common during the 19th century for well-to-do families to op, to uh, have a, a lock on a box at an opera house, place, particularly places like New York. And they would come and they would bring a, a picnic supper with them and maybe games. And um, it was not considered gauche to, to go to the opera to see and be seen and to wave at other patrons sure. and and I guess the opera stars put up with this as long as people were paying for the tickets. So I, I, I see, you know, you talk just a little bit about the the, the idea of opera going. Uh, Rhoda Linda uh, premiered 1725. 
and had a castrato in a leading role. Of course, we don't have those anymore. Yeah, thank God. Um, yeah, exactly. And you know, sometimes they're sung by uh, counter tenors. Right, right. And apparently, Italian opera was very popular in mm-hmm, London. Mm-hmm. And the, some of the critics would say, isn't it amusing that these these Londoners are gra- are gathered here like a tribe of foreigners because they can't understand the language. And of course, then we look at the same opera, Rodolinda. I, I saw at, at the Metropolitan Opera in New York with Renee Fleming, who is a product of modern celebrity culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we also had super titles. Ah, yes, yes, yes. And I... Unlike you, I was I was not enamored of opera as a child. I didn't see I didn't see opera regularly until uh, probably the mid nineteen nineties. So uh, super titles have always been a part of my experience, and I can't imagine li- going and seeing an opera without them because the the libretto you can read it in advance, but you want to see what people are saying with each line. It's it's and so opera going obviously has changed as a cultural phenomenon mm-hmm. very much so mm-hmm. in reaction to not only the works themselves, but to time and technology. Yeah, yeah, no, very good. Um, all, all, I mean, there are many different directions we could go with that, Jim. Very good points. Um, yeah, let me th- let me think just for a second. You know, uh, absolutely, um, the cultural moment, whatever it happens to be, if it's um, 1725 and Handel's writing operas, um, uh, you know, essentially on a annual basis uh, to keep op- the opera house he's working in, you know, um, certainly the cultural cultural moment makes a big difference uh, in audience mm-hmm. expectations and also what the technology uh, at the time is, you know, can, can afford. Supertitles, I'm with you, supertitles projected over the stage or subtitles on the back of the chair in front of you, which is yes, how it, the met- yeah, titles. Yeah, yeah, exactly how the Metropolitan Opera does it, um, you know, are obviously a big a convenience and advantage to understanding the drama in your own language. That's a good thing. Um, it's a whole lot better than not knowing, first of all, or holding a dim flashlight like I used to do uh, and reading the text in translation in the libretto held on my lap while people are sort of looking at me like, what's he doing? So, um, yeah, it's it, it, and, and absolutely, you were right, your earlier comment about uh, how people attended performances, um, you know, particularly as uh, personal spectacles to see and be seen, you know, uh, in their boxes, and they would bring their food and they would chat with other people. And there, there might be a moment that they would stop and pay attention to what was going on on stage. All those things are true. It's in the 19th century uh, where culture begins to shift to uh, to. Uh, and I think it has to do with, and again, music historians could uh, could describe this in greater detail and authority, but I think it has to do with the notion of the romantic artist, um, Beethoven, for example, someone whose uh, intelligence, passion, insight is worth paying attention to for its own sake, more important than you are as a mere audience member. You know, it's kind of the, the quality of it. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's more or less the way you don't hear people talking when you go to the symphony these days, do you, for the most part? You know, I mean, it's become a cultural norm, at least in the West, uh, you know, that we're familiar with. Science tells us that humans, early humans, expressed preference for some musical intervals over others, yeah. which I found fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You, you look at the intervals and you think, okay, a major third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, not a a major seventh, 
Unless, of course, you're playing jazz. Yeah, sure, sure. How many jazz tunes end on a major seven? (laughs) And that that seems to indicate that there is a, is it evolutionary, perhaps, uh, a a reason why most operas frequently performed will span the range from Mozart to Puccini. And once we start getting past, like, Richard Strauss, Mm -hmm. And then especially if we get to more modern operas, it would indicate to us that, that there is an inborn preference for tonality. Um, I, I think so. Um, it's a fascinating topic, really. And I think it's just beginning to emerge in the scientific research, you know, um, and I'm not sure we can make firm conclusions yet about it, uh, about whether um, uh, tonality is uh, entirely inborn, our preference for it. What is it, Duke Ellington? I don't mean to think of it. Ain't got that swing. It, it, you know, if if there's if there's not, and it, you know, that's sort of a, a free riff on something that's not exactly the same. But I'm, but I'm, but but the point I think is that um, if you if you leave an opera and you can't sing anything from it, you don't remember a single thing. When when, yeah. when Verdi wrote Rigoletto, uh, there's a famous aria called La Donne Mobile. Um, oh, etc. Right? Yeah. Okay. I'm a baritone, so I have to take it down. Well, I just did. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You like you like to sing a duet. Um, yes. But Verdi wouldn't, if I recall correctly, Verdi wouldn't let that be sung outside the opera house because you know by the by the performers rehearsing you know for the production for the initial mm-hmm. production because he was concerned that it already would be known it was a good melody and people would go I've heard that before. You know, yeah. essentially, right? And so he, he probably did the same thing with Brindisi, right? The drinking yeah. song. Da, 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 it's a way, exactly. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. so so catchy melodies, which are invariably tonal, because you can remember them. All right. So wh- yeah. how does that happen? Very briefly, in singing, a singer can generate overtones of mm. distinct intervals uh, while singing various fundamental tones. I'm I'm going to save the audience here by not singing anymore. But if I were to sing, say, uh, A, you would hear uh-huh. overtones. And actually, you can hear overtones in my voice right now. They're very uh-huh. faint, and they go up uh, with intervals above the, of the tone that I'm making. The same harmonious intervals are revealed in natural human speech, as I was saying, in many cultures. Um, one scientific in- interpretation that humans have been listening to the sounds of each other before there were words. We were talking before about vocal gestures, for instance, which didn't involve when people didn't have any words, so there wasn't any language. But they go, hey, you know, to call attention to something, right? Under the complex demands of group living, humans came to express themselves vocally. So we are by nature in long evolutionary, here's that word again, evolutionary experience in human cultures attuned to detecting and, and interpreting various communication repertoires including gestures and bodily expressions, as well as vocalizations of several kinds, such as grunts. <clears throat> oh, I'll do that. Grunts, clicks, growls, and hisses. <laughs> Raspberries. But also, of course, tones. The evolutionary hypothesis is that humans' sense of tonality arose because of the great value of recognizing the tones and their combinations that other humans make and made because they were routinely the most important sound signals in their environment. Yeah. You'd want to focus on human tones, which have, again, those 
tonal intervals as their overtones to them, rather than uh, memorizing the sound of mm, a lion. You got that once, you got it in your head, you know, but uh, how people are reacting in a tribal pre-verbal situation with grunts, clicks, you know, and so on, you'd want to be paying attention to because maybe you're the guy that's going to be thrown out of the tribe and that means death. So there, you know, there are lots of uh, elements to this emerging scientific understanding of tonality, which I do gloss a bit in chapter three. Based on everything from human evolution to psychology, and that's a rather broad material <laughs> I know, yeah. have you run across evidence why people tend to become more interested in opera as they get older? Ah. You know, that's a really interesting question because it doesn't take... Um, uh, a genius to uh, to uh, visit an opera house and to see that most of the people are, well, are typically, um, you know, older than 50. Um, and Especially it, when you go to the Sunday matinees. <laughs> as I, yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, of course, opera companies are struggling with that right now um, in a variety of ways, uh, including by developing uh, new operas um, that uh, that may appeal to um, identities that are different from the traditional ones by uh, offering ticket prices that are lower um, than have been the norm in the past. It's a difficult uh, calculation for opera companies, big ones, for instance, like the Met, which is a very large and um, you know and prominent uh, musical organization in the United States, let alone opera company. You know, because ticket sales only amount to a part of their their entire uh, their total. Uh, cost of operation, uh, you know, and uh, so therefore, historically, uh, at a place like the Met, um, you know, the people that you want to get are those who are relatively affluent. We're going to buy season's tickets, as a good friend of mine has historically had for about fifty years, and uh, you know, and, and to uh, t- tap into that important economic revenue stream. But um, that said, again, there's a drive to uh, uh, present operas, um, first of all, simply in new productions, which may update the appearance of the staging, for example, but also uh, to address different identities um, that uh, formerly were overlooked. And I'm thinking here um, uh, of of some of the fine feminist uh, operas, uh, operas um, devoted uh, with with particular attention to gay and lesbian people uh, and uh, and also uh, a fine opera that last year uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for music in America. Um, well, well, Blanchard, uh, right? Uh, no, it's actually Omar. Um, by, oh, okay. Uh, by, okay. By Giddon. I was thinking of uh, Fire Shut Up in My yeah, Bones. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. And so, right. So, you know, there's really an attempt to attract a a broader audience. And, and I think the jury's out on the longer term you know, prospects of that. There's also virtual reality, which I, uh, you know, which will be a form of viewing. And of course, there's cinema, which we haven't talked about yet in any particular depth, but we could, you know, and, and yeah. so there's a lot of attempt to make, here's that word, oh, from the 1960s, uh, opera relevant. Relevant. Yeah. It must be relevant. It must be, yeah. 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 Speaking speaking of film, a film adaptation of La Boheme, uh, with Ananda Trebko. Yep. Uh, you need star power yep. for a film. Yep. Yep. Uh, you, you, need a, you need a marquee name. Uh, what does that tell us about the power of cinema in opera relative to the, to the stage? And then, of course, I'm thinking there is sort of an in between, which is the Metropolitan Opera's live in HD series, 
which I, I've seen several of those. And I, personally, I think they're quite effective because they're large. They reproduce the scale and the the grandeur of, of opera in the way a television screen cannot. Yes. And, but at the same time, it is a stage opera that happens to be captured. You know, they've got to do the camera blocking. Um, mm -hmm. I'm always impressed with how well they do the audio on this, considering it's a, a live performance. But it's not the same as cinema. No. It's a sort of a, an in-between medium. But we know, at the very least, these are attracting a lot more people yeah. to these works. Yes, that's right. Um, I've uh, momentarily I can look it up, Jim, but I, I've lost track of the number of views of uh, the live and HD transmissions from the Met that you were just referring to. But I can guarantee that um, overall they must be substantially larger because they can be broadcast internationally. Whereas, yes. you know, whereas you're just talking about going to the Met in New York, you know, and, and yes. the house though it's a big one of thousands of seats. Uh, it's, it doesn't compare to what can be, you know, uh, um, uh, attracted uh, internationally. And, you know, and, and, uh, and that's right. Um, the, those live in HD and many opera companies, and the, many of the larger ones now, um, not only the Met, um, but also San Francisco Opera, I believe Houston, um, uh, ones in Europe as well, you know, have those live transmissions uh, of their performances, and they're relatively common. That's and right, and those are live transmissions or recorded transmissions of live performances, stage performances, and that's right. Uh, you get certain advantages there that you don't. I mean, when I was a student, I would be sitting or standing in the cheap seats, uh, standing uh, up in the you know, up in the balcony, in the high balcony, and, you know, and you could only see part of the stage and you could mm -hmm. see maybe the grand gestures of the open arms of the, you know, of the, of the performers uh, signifying that they were reaching out or they were uh, astonished or something, you know, but, but, <laughs> but, but in general, you didn't see facial expressions, for instance, whereas the movie that you referred to and that I write about in the book, um, La Boheme uh, with uh, Anna Netrebko and Rolando Villazon, um, done in the early 2000s, does show some of the significant advantages that cinema can have. A, a, a movie, a film of the opera, rather than a stage production that's filmed. And I, I would say it has certain advantages, film, a filmed opera as a presentation uh, a medium. To summarize, among those advantages are a clear and identical view of the performance, a large view, as you were saying before, mm -hmm. all in very good sound, as opposed to I'm you know, holding my hand over my ear to hear it way up in the balcony. Uh, also with on-screen subtitles, as you were saying, we were discussing before, an advantage usually. In addition, the camera can bring the viewer in close allowing the viewer to see fine-grained facial expressions that I couldn't see in the balcony, uh, which would not be visible be beyond those expensive seats in the front of the house. With a filmed opera like that La Boheme we're talking about, the director can do even more, obviously taking time and as many takes as his film uh, as is needed to direct the action, uh, but also to do subtle audio things. Here's a really important part. Like having singers who are having private thoughts to themselves have those vocal lines as voiceovers. So at one point in La Boheme in the third act, the very famous and, and sad uh, uh, scene there where Mimi, uh, the woman, uh, understands that she's uh, very sick and may die. She says to herself, what does he mean? And when she, when she hears her lover say that she's doomed, but that's a voiceover. We don't see her lips move. We just hear the voice in her head. 
and one of the things about that is that it shows how film uh, and a film of an opera in this case, just just like a, a, a film a, a, of a feature film, can intensify the function of soliloquy. And soliloquy is so important in our in our human lives. Nobody knows what's really going on in anybody else's head at any time. Right. I look at my wife and I'm wondering, what's she really thinking? You know, I, I have a pretty good idea because I know her pretty well. But, you know, it, I don't really know. And that's that's always the human puzzle. And so soliloquies in drama, whether it's a feature film or an opera, whatever it is, the soliloquy gives you at least you know, a fictional presentation of what's going on in someone's mind. And it gives you a sense of transparency that otherwise you simply don't have. And if the, and if the actor is credible in performing, the singer is credible in performing that soliloquy, you think, bingo, I really understand what this, what this person's going through. Mimi has just realized she's going to die. And you don't, you, you may feel that because of the music is so good. You may feel that in the opera house and from the gestures that she's making. It's not just, you know, um, uh, what she's saying, but, you know, um, it, it, it has a different dimension when it's that voiceover in a film, which only film can do. And then and you look at the uh, my wife and I recently saw uh, Madame Butterfly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. met in HD and we were watching it uh, on television on a DVD. And I noticed I said, yeah, this is it's because it is a a video capture of a live stage performance is not the same as film. Obviously there are limitations with the blocking of the cameras right. and obviously you, there's only one take. And also you notice, you know, th there are no close-ups. There are two shots mm -hmm. and there are three shots, group shots. And then occasionally mm -hmm. they'll pan out and you can see that incredible proscenium arch and everything, mm -hmm. but there are no close-ups. Mm -hmm. And so at, at some point they have to make a, a, a deliberate, compromise between you know the, the demands of the audience you know it's like those old movies you would look at and that the all the players had this white pancake makeup on mm -hmm. and uh, and the demands of a of, of a of a home audience or a theater audience so it's a, it's a it's kind of a hybrid art form it is but that, that digital technology specifically makes possible and i think very very uh impressive very very evocative yeah no it, it's right i mean you know you could arguably make a case and 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 there are colleagues scholars who actually specialize in you know in this dimension of of current uh, opera production you know uh, uh uh how to use film uh, more successfully you know the, it, in some ways uh, if i understand it correctly the met is using uh, multiple cameras as you were saying uh, jim and and there's a mixer out there probably in the street you know oh, yeah. yeah who's choosing the shots um yeah probably a semi-truck yeah outside. exactly you know it's just like it was a sporting event in a certain extent mm -hmm. you know exactly yeah. yeah you know and and so it's a very sophisticated um, uh, technology. One of the problems, of course, and you were saying that the close-ups of the singers are uh, are uncommon, in, in part because no one wants to look down anybody else's throat. Right. Uh, you know, um, and, and, well, I mean, maybe you do, but uh, it, <laughs> but it's not polite. Um, mm. You know, and so you tend to have not, uh, you know, extreme close-ups of that. But you can have an extreme close-up Anna Netrebko uh, in mm -hmm. La Boheme when she has her mouth closed. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, uh, uh, 
you know, it's a book for another day, uh, for another writer, no doubt, about the evolution, specifically the cultural evolution of opera, because it's a fascinating thing in and of itself. Um, you know, but I'm, that's not the book that I particularly wrote. I wonder, uh, you know, based on your long career helping scientists communicate in ways that will provoke their audience to, I think, care about the environment. This is one of your large sure. missions. You wrote, for example, about salmon in the Pacific Northwest, yes. which is sort of like a, a bellwether for so many other things in the environment. Correct. And I wonder if if your your work helps maybe bridge some gaps a little bit and maybe dispel this idea that the arts have no place in the STEM curriculum. Yeah, I'm a great fan of, I guess, what's now called the STEAM approach, right? Mm -hmm. uh, science, technology, education, um, uh, arts, and math. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, sorry, um, uh, engineering, arts, and math. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, I'm on the board of directors of an institute for learning innovation, it's called, um, in which uh, the focus is on how um, a variety of those uh, um, technologies can be used and benefit uh, end users as opposed to the producers. You know, and Jim, as a communication specialist yourself, uh, you'll know the um, uh, information deficit argument that, that mm -hmm. so often gets brought up where specialists in a particular topic are so convinced that if they only knew the information that I have, then they would change their behavior. And I'm, I'm saying to myself, so I, I've been following and actually did a fair amount of communication research and public engagement around climate change. And climate change is, has been talked about by the experts for decades now. You know, and so it was merely an information deficit that people were suffering from, you know, and that if they only knew what the scientists knew, everything would 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 be better. That doesn't that's not the way it works. People yeah. have their own interests. They have their own uh, concerns. Uh, they have their own desires for, as a colleague and friend of mine, John Falk, talks about well-being at every moment of their lives. And so I mean, I think. When, for instance, opera companies are uh, are asking themselves whether um, all they need to do is present operas uh, with new productions, uh, different singers, um, and lower ticket prices, they may not be thinking about the other reasons that people uh, may choose to go to an opera uh, versus some other event that might be uh, occurring and available to them uh, in their place and at their time, uh, which include, you know, ultimately, for example, uh, in terms of well-being, and maybe the social connections. Well, you know, let's go with a bunch of friends. I mean, that's more important to me, the, the social opportunity to be with a bunch of friends and have an experience together. That may be impo more important than whether the opera's Carmen or something else, right? Mm -hmm. Similarly, it may be that it's an opportunity to visit and have a special occasion with a nice dinner with someone you love, for example. Yeah. That happens in um, Moonstruck, right? With Nicholas Cage. They go to La Boheme yeah. as a date, right? Yes. You know, so the point is, yeah. that's part of well-being is to, is to understand that people have a variety of ways in which they want to maximize in any moment in their lives their own well-being. Um, and, and so for, again, for people going to the opera or something else, they're thinking, oh, is this going to, 
No, okay. I mean, all right. So I'm in on, I mean, okay. It's in French. I don't, I don't understand French. There could be subtitles. Okay. That, that, that works for me. I can look at the subtitles, you know, uh, is it really old? Well, you know, well, it's really old, but it's really good. It'll be convincing. Okay. I guess I'll go for it. You know, so the point is there are lots of variables that go in more than just who's singing. Is it a new production and are where ticket prices lower? Yeah. I mean, those things may help, but it's not the whole story. And I think opera companies, you know, need to obviously reflect upon all that. And I think, I think the, you know, the more progressive ones are. Joseph Cohn is the author of Seeing Opera Anew, A Cultural and Biological Perspective. It is published by Rutledge. Thank you so much for being and, with us today. And thank you, Jim. I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you for your time and your interest as we've been developing uh, this opportunity over uh, some weeks now. Thank you for your time.